Hello, my name is Van Sneed, and welcome to another episode of The PS Plus, a Living Faith Bible Institute podcast that serves as a companion to another called The Postscript. Now, on that podcast, pastor and host Brandon Briscoe each week speaks with other pastors and professors from the Living Faith Bible Institute on a wide array of topics. Here on this podcast, the PS Plus, we'll take a look at some of those topics that are being discussed and we'll dive in just a bit deeper. We are resuming our KJV series today after taking a few weeks off for random other episodes, but we're back learning about the authorized version. So let's do this thing. We've been kind of joking about it for a while now, but uh, this should not be your first episode. We've got some things to review in reference to what we talked about in the previous episode, but beyond that, you're just going to want to start earlier in the series, like part one in the series. We're just going to assume at this point that you've got a lot of knowledge you've been keeping up, but let's take a moment to talk about what we talked about last episode. We began speaking about the critical text, that is, the manuscript family that is the basis for a lot of the Bibles, in fact, most of the Bibles that you see on the market today. So we were looking at the genesis of this, and we can't talk about that without talking about a man named Constantine von Tischendorf. Tischendorf was one of the key figures in the development of the critical text, and that's because of a very specific discovery of two important manuscripts called the Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. Sinaiticus, also known as Aleph or A, was discovered by Tischendorf in 1859 at St. Catherine's Monastery at the base of Mount Sinai, hence its name, whereas Codex Vaticanus, also known as B, was found in the Vatican Library. Now, the significance of Sinaiticus and Vaticanus is their influence on future editions of the Greek New Testament. Because these manuscripts are of a different text type, which we've talked about before, the critical text type or Alexandrian text type is different than those of the Textus Receptus, which we talked about a couple of episodes ago, which is a majority text type or a Byzantine text type. Literally, the manuscripts that that make up these newer translations are different than the manuscripts that made up the King James Bible. A few episodes ago, we were looking at the development of the Textus Receptus, again, the Greek New Testament editions that make up the KJV. And what we saw is that there wasn't a single edition by a single individual, but rather several editions by several individuals, men like Erasmus, Stephanus, Beza, and the tag team champions of the world, the Elzevir brothers. Similarly, what started with Tischendorf in the discovery of Sinaiticus and Vaticanus manuscripts would begin a series of of textual critical variations, editions, first produced by Tischendorf himself, as well as other men like Carl Lackman in 1842 and Samuel Prudhoe-Trigellus in 1857. However, the most significant Greek New Testament was produced by two men that we have to mention, Brooke Foss Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort. Westcott was an English bishop who lived from 1825 to 1901, whereas Hort was an Irish theologian that lived from 1828 through 1819. Both of these men worked together to publish their version of the Greek New Testament in 1881. And again, we cannot understate 
the importance, the significance of that publication, because this was followed by the release of the revised version in 1885, which was the first official revision of the King James Bible. The King James Bible that had been published in 1611 finally has an official revision in 1885. Now, there's a whole bunch, like a whole bunch, that can be and has been said about Westcott and Hort. Proponents of the critical text laud these individuals for their intelligence and their faithfulness to the work of textual criticism and their mission to restore the authority of the Bible. Whereas opponents call their methods dubious and the men themselves heretics. So that's that's quite a spread. So with the time that we have left, I thought it would be good, I thought it might be prudent to simply take a look as best we can objectively more so at the work of these men. And I'm not saying that the character of these men is important, but man, the further the further on you get from the life of an individual, the harder it becomes to suss out what's true and what's not, unless you can just kind of read what they wrote and see the impact of what they did. And so that's what I want to do today. So as a companion to their Greek New Testament, both Westcott and Hort had an introduction which outlined their reasoning and their methodology for undertaking a new Greek edition. And I thought it might be good for us to read this quote in its entirety. And it's not short, so just go with me. If you are listening and you just can't stand the sound of my voice for long periods of time, one, what are you doing? I mean, that's that's like not a smart move. But two, get, get ready because supervillain monologue is coming right now. Every transcription of any kind of writing involves the chance of the introduction of some errors, and even if the transcript is revised by comparison with its exemplar or immediate original, there is no absolute security that all the errors will be corrected. When the transcript becomes itself the parent of other copies, one or more, its errors are for the most part reproduced. Those only are likely to be removed, which at once strike the eye of a transcriber as mere blunders destructive of sense, and even in these cases he will often go astray in making what seems to him the obvious correction. In addition to the inherited deviations from the original, each fresh transcript is liable to contain fresh errors to be transmitted in like manner to its own descendants. The nature and amount of corruption of texts thus generated and propagated depends to a great extent on the peculiarities of the book itself, the estimation in which it is held, and the uses to which it is applied. The rate cannot always be uniform. The professional training of scribes can rarely obliterate individual differences of accuracy and conscientiousness, and moreover, the current standard of exactness will vary at different times and places and the different grades of cultivation, the number of transcriptions, and consequent opportunities of corruption cannot be accurately measured by a difference of date, for at any date a transcript may be made either from a contemporary manuscript or from one written any number of centuries before. These inequalities do not render it less true that the repeated transcription involves multiplication of error and the consequent presumption that a relatively late text is likely to be a relatively corrupt text is found true on the application of all available texts in an overwhelming proportion of the extant manuscripts in which ancient literature has been 
preserved. I told you guys, it's a heck of a quote, but also, what the heck does that even mean? Well, let's, let's break down a couple of the key statements because there's a lot to unpack here. However, if you've been following along with this podcast, what you're going to find is that this, this train of thought is consistent with some themes that we've talked about before. First, we can't hear a statement like that without coming to the conclusion that Westcott and Hort thought that the older the manuscript is, the better. And again, we discussed this previously by looking at the textual criticism rules or canons of Johann Griesbach, rules which were employed by Westcott and Hort. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, which were of great importance to Westcott and Hort, as well as other critical manuscripts of the Alexandrian type, were dated earlier and therefore, in their minds, more reliable. Later dated manuscripts like the one used by Erasmus, Stephanus, and Basil were less reliable because they were dated further away from the original writings that a textual critic is trying to get back to. The other theme that we cannot miss from a statement like this is the idea of scribal errors continuing to propagate. In Westcott and Hort's mind, as well as most textual critics in general, these faithful but fallible men undoubtedly made errors in their work that quickly multiplied as copies of copies of copies were made throughout history. However, I think one of the key things, at least for me, really the most important thing, is the very last part of that quote, which I'll go ahead and reiterate because, again, it was, it was kind of a mouthful. The consequent presumption that a relatively late text is likely to be a relatively corrupt text is found true on the application of all available tests in an overwhelming proportion of the extant manuscripts in which ancient literature has been preserved. In other words, other classic literary works of antiquity are almost always corrupted the further away they get from the original writings, and the Bible is no different. But here's the point. The Bible is different. Is the Bible a work of antiquity? Yes. Is the Bible a product of men alone? If you believe what the Bible says, the answer is no. Because the last time I checked, John 1 once said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. There is something about the Word of God, particularly its divine origin, that makes it distinct from any other book in all of human history. To treat the Bible like any other piece of ancient literature is to effectively say that we do not hold the same view of God's Word that He does. And therein lies my issue with Westcott and Hort's statement. Regardless of where these men found themselves as far as their doctrine or their moral character, their viewpoint of the Bible does not have any particular reverence for the Bible, but rather they have constructed a scientific textual apparatus whereby they can determine the validity of a text and subsequently the Bible the same way that they would do with any other piece of literature But y'all, the Bible ain't any other piece of literature now, is it? It's the very words of God. In the American edition of the introduction to Westcott and Hort's Greek New Testament, a Swiss 
theologian Philip Schaff has some words to say, very complimentary, very excited about the Greek New Testament and the Revised Version translation that was sourced from this Greek New Testament. In it, he divides the history of Greek New Testament editions into three time periods. I'm going to quote his words here and again pay special attention to the words that he's using. One, the period of unlimited reign of the received text so-called from 1516 to 1750 or 1770. Two, the transition period from the received text to the unical text, 1770 to 1830. And three, the restoration of the oldest and purest text, 1830 to 1881. Again, remember that to textual critics, the act of getting the text of the Bible is a restorative process. Rather than having the Word of God, we must get back to the Word of God. Philip Schaff's language becomes even more pronounced. He's essentially telling on himself the further in this book that you read. With that said, I'll read another quote from him that I think will help kind of illustrate this point. The applications of these critical canons, and pause for the cause, by critical canons we mean the 15 rules that Griesbach developed, a variation of which Westcott and Hort also employed. The application of these critical canons decides in the main against the Texas Receptus. Erasmus, Stevens, and Beza were good scholars, but could accomplish little with the scanty resources at their command. Griesbach, Lachman, and Tregellis, and Tischendorf had the advantage over him in possession of an immense critical apparatus which has been accumulating for 300 years. We are now able to go back from the cursive text of the 15th century to a text at least a thousand years older, a text of the Nicene and anti-Nicene age. It has taken a long time for scholars to become emancipated from the tyranny of the Texas Receptus, and it will be a long time before the people can be weaned from the authority of the vernacular versions based upon it. The loss of the traditional text is more than made up by the game. The substance remains, the form only is changed. The true text is shorter, but it is also older, purer, and stronger. By that, we must abide until new discoveries bring us still nearer to the inspired original. And again, there are a few key statements that definitely bear repeating. Schaff calls the compilers of the Texas Receptus manuscripts good scholars, but, quote, could accomplish little with the scanty resources at their command. Schaff, like Westcott, like Hort, like a lot in the critical text camp, often view the production of the Bible as a purely academic pursuit. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that every textual critic views their work of translation only as a science experiment. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that there is a seemingly lack of reverence as evidenced by the words that we just read, in particular for these men. Also note that he claims that the Texas Receptus, and by extension, the King James Bible, is not a text that should be honored, never mind the fact that it allowed the Bible to get into the hands of the common man in mass, nor that its texts were used during the Protestant Reformation or the transformative missions movements throughout church history. Rather, scholars must be, quote, emancipated from the tyranny of it. Tyranny, y'all. 
That's a word that Schaff chose very specifically. He could have chose any word, but he chose tyranny, and he liked it so much that he put it in print. So let that sink in for a moment. The law, Schaff states, is more than made up by the game. However, it seems contradictory that the stated goal is trying to get back to God's word while simultaneously loathing God's word. From the publishing of Westcott and Hort's Greek New Testament and the Revised Version, the proliferation of Greek New Testament editions and English Bible translations from those critical texts would grow exponentially. We've mentioned before the Nestle Elan Greek New Testament currently in its 28th edition. And at present, the Institute for the New Testament Textual Research in Munster, Germany, is working on an entirely new edition of the Greek language New Testament called the Edito Critica Maior, or the ECM, which is set to be complete in 2030. There are now so many translations of the Bible available in English that would it, it would take a whole podcast to name all of them. But just to give you an idea of kind of where we're at and maybe see the history of it a little bit, after the revised version of 1885, it was the American Standard Version of 1901. If you are curious and like giving yourself homework, then go look at uh, the timing of that and the story behind it. It's it's pretty pretty fun. Later, we see the Revised Standard Version of 1946, the Jerusalem Bible of 1966, the New English Bible of 1970, the New American Standard Bible of 1971, the Good News Bible of 1976, the New International Version of 1978, the New King James Version of 1982, the English Standard Version of 2001, the Net Bible of 2005, the Passion Translation of 2017, and it goes on and on and on. What have we gained via the critical text in, in an effort to get back to the original, well, we've gained not only a proliferation of Greek New Testament editions, but also we've gained a proliferation of Bible versions. My question is, for what purpose do they all serve? At what point are we satisfied that we have God's Word, or is it constantly an evolving process? And the answer is, it is constantly an evolving process if you take the view that God has not preserved His Word, but rather we are tasked with getting back to God's Word. This is in stark contrast with what we've been talking about from the very beginning, a faith-based view of the Bible that comes to it knowing and believing that we have the very words of God. And with that as a foundation, we can move forward in faith as we're obedient to them. So as always, I want to thank you for joining me on another episode of the PS Plus. If you have questions about the Living Faith Bible Institute, I'd encourage you to go to lfbi.org. You can find out what we are all about. Also, at the time that this episode is airing, the spring 2023 semester for LFBI is just about to kick off. If you don't know what class to take, just go back or up, I guess, in this uh, stream of podcasts and I guess maybe it's down. I don't know my directions. Uh, uh, wherever you 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 did to get here, like go there again, and there should be a, there should be something that tells you about all the classes, all the spring classes for 2023. You can also find them online at lfbi.org as well. I hope this episode was helpful for you, and I hope to talk to you next time. Take care.